Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is part of our special series, the first in a special series called Agenda 2021, uh, which is to focus on what may change, what should change, should we have a new president uh, in January of next year. Uh, and uh, the first podcast that we're doing in this series, naturally, given what we do, uh, is going to focus on foreign policy. And we're extremely fortunate to have uh, with us two of the top experts on foreign policy in Washington, two friends, uh, Ambassador Bill Burns, who is president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and Tony Blinken, who is a foreign policy advisor to the Biden campaign, and both of whom were former deputy secretaries of state, among other things. Hi, guys. Hey, David. Hi, David. Hey, Tony. Great to be with uh, you both. Uh, well, it's great to, great to have you. And I want to start out just where I said I would, which is um, to talk about now, now here we are three and a half years into the Trump administration. Um, and I you know, don't necessarily want to say, well, what's the foreign policy grade? But I really want to ask, you know, how different is where we are now compared to past administrations? How far have we deviated from what U.S. foreign policy priorities uh, would be. And I guess the idea is to be a little bit uh, prescriptive, anticipating the kinds of things that are going to have to be addressed once we um, enter into a new administration. Uh, let me start with you, Tony. Well, you know, David, first, I think we've got to look at the elephant in the room, which is uh, the coronavirus and, and, and COVID-19. And that's actually not a bad frame for answering your question, because there's a stark departure uh, in this administration from previous administrations, Republican and Democrat, in terms of our international engagement in dealing with uh, this pandemic. Um, just think about it for a second. When we had, we've never had anything of this magnitude, at least in my lifetime, but when we've had similar uh, crises that really implicated uh, large chunks of the world, uh, the United States engaged, the United States led, and we brought countries together to try to forge some kind of coordinated collective uh, response. Uh, HIV AIDS, uh, for example, uh, the Bush administration did an extraordinary job, both with its own program, uh, PEPFAR, and with the, uh, the Global Fund. And that was a product of U.S. engagement and U.S. leadership. Um, when we dealt with 9-11, uh, um, we, uh, again, through things like the G then G8, uh, the G20, convened the international community and took a collective response. And most recently, and maybe most appropriately in terms of an analogy, um, the financial crisis, 2008-2009. Uh, the United States, again, led through the, uh, the G7, through the G20, and the coordinated uh, responses that we were able to put in place 
uh, if they didn't exactly solve everything, they certainly mitigated some of the worst aspects of the crisis and I think allowed more rapid recovery. Contrast that with what we've seen now. Um, we happened to be, when this virus broke out, in the chair of the G7. Did we convene an emergency session? No, it, it took the French president, Macron, to bring the G7 together. And then the whole thing devolved into a ridiculous fight instigated by the United States about whether to call uh, what was happening the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus. Uh, similarly, the G20 took months to get together uh, and did virtually nothing. So the lack of U.S. engagement, the lack of U.S. leadership, the lack of a more coordinated collective response, both on the health side and on the economic side, is in stark contrast to what we've seen before. Bill, same question. Well, no, I agree with Tony, not surprisingly. I mean, I, I served as a professional diplomat for three and a half decades, worked for five presidents, 10 secretaries of state who survived me, you know, administrations of both parties. And, you know, we weren't, we made a lot of mistakes over that era, but what animated American foreign policy at its best in those years was just what Tony described, a sense of enlightened self-interest, the sense that no matter how great American power or influence was in the world, we magnified it, we multiplied it by making common cause with others, whether it was treaty allies or partners or mobilizing coalitions of countries. That's really what has always set the United States apart from lonelier major powers like China or Russia. Um, and, and I think what President Trump has clearly done is turned that notion of enlightened self-interest on its head. So it's a lot more about the self part than the enlightened part. And that, you know, at precisely the moment when that capacity to invest in alliances and mobilize coalitions matters more than ever, we're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block. We face lots of problems, you know, the problems without passports, like the pandemic, like climate change, um, which go beyond the capacity of any one nation state to deal with that requires mobilizing others and trying to reinvent and rejuvenate international institutions, which desperately need reform. Instead, we've been dismissive of that notion that, you know, we, this administration has subscribed to the notion that American power is best delivered or best served unilaterally. And I think that just um, undermines our influence. It causes a lot of our allies and partners uh, to have serious doubts and increasing doubts about our competence and about our reliability. It causes our biggest rivals like China and Russia to almost you know, not be able to imagine their good fortune with a playing field that's been cleared in a lot of ways for their own ambitions. Um, and in the process, I think the president um, has hollowed out a lot of really important domestic institutions too. So it's a, it's a pretty rough landscape that I think a new administration would inherit. Okay, well, let me pick up on two dimensions of that before we go on to what the agenda ought to be. Um, uh, Tony, Bill was talking about enlightened self-interest uh, as a motivating factor, and he mentioned also institutions. I think one of the things that has been most striking about U.S. foreign policy from the end of World War II through now has been a desire to help uh, shape and build and empower and utilize an international system of institutions, of alliances, um, uh, where common cause could be found, where um, uh, burdens could be shared. Um, and at just a moment where one might have seen, perhaps in a Hillary Clinton administration, a, a look at how one could revitalize those institutions and perhaps expand them to some new issues, whether it's the regulation of the internet or dealing with other transnational issues, we have done a, a, an about face 
on institutions and treaties that's really kind of unprecedented, whether it's pulling out of TPP, pulling out of the Paris Accord, pulling out of JCPOA, pulling out of the INF Treaty, pulling out of the Open Skies Agreement, unfunding different parts of of the UN, pulling out of different parts of the UN, uh, trash-talking our allies. Uh, It seems like we've actually been moving in the opposite direction. And I'm wondering, first of all, do you think that's the case? And secondly, how much damage do you think that has done? Uh, I do think that's the case. And to, to piggyback on what you just said and what Bill was saying earlier, look, the approach that was taken before this administration, again, across Democratic and Republican administrations, was born out of a simple observation, but a powerful one. And, and it's this, uh, the world tends not to organize itself. So we have a choice. We can either play a lead role in doing some of that organizing, establishing the norms, writing the rules, animating the institutions that govern relations among nations, or one of two other things. Either someone else does it, and probably uh, not in a way that advances our interests and values, and of course we're seeing China step up to try to fill some of the vacuums left by the Trump administration's abdication of that responsibility, or maybe just as bad, no one does it, and then you tend to have chaos or a vacuum that tends to be filled by bad things before it's filled by good things. So this really is, as Bill said, grounded in enlightened self-interest. We, don't, we didn't do this out of charity. We didn't uh, work in these institutions and build them uh, out, of, out of charity. It made sense. It was in our self-interest given the alternatives. And that's exactly what this administration has not walked away from, it's ran away from. Um, and so what we're seeing is this, we're seeing these um, uh, vacuums that are now being filled in places by uh, China and other countries, or we're seeing vacuums filled by no one, and then we have chaos. And again, the response to COVID-19 may be a good uh, example of that. So um, I think there's a real urgency, but we, we have to understand that we can't go back to the world as it was in 2008 and 2009. If there's a new administration come January, it will have to deal with the world as it is then, and as we anticipate it will become in the ensuing years. Lots have changed, including not just power relationships among nations, but individuals and groups that are super empowered by technology uh, and information that uh, we have to account for and engage in ways we never had to in the past. All of that has to play into uh, a new approach to the way we do the organizing and the leading in the world. Um, yeah, and to pick up on that point, Bill, you know, the uh, you know, despite what sometimes we may think in Washington, you know, we global. Policy is not driven by the United States alone. And as we've seen in this COVID crisis, uh, uh, there's been a rather extraordinary leadership void. In fact, if you look at virtually every significant power in the world, uh, those uh, are the ones that did things the worst, whether it's the United States or Russia or China or India or Brazil um, uh, they didn't come together. They chose the wrong path. The UK was even on that list. Um, and we do live in a moment where other than the Chinese who seem to be making a move for greater power, the, the kind of head table of foreign policy is in disarray in a way that we haven't seen it in, uh, in, in perhaps 75 years. But what, what, do you, what do you think about that? And what do you think the consequences of that are? I think that's, I think that's right, David. Um, I think, you know, we're 
even before you know President Trump's election in 2016, we, the rest of the globe, were headed into a really complicated period of transition. You know, we had passed the, what, what people called the post-Cold War period, the first quarter century or so after the end of the Cold War. And the contours of the order that was going to follow weren't entirely clear yet. We weren't going to be the singular dominant player that we had been during the Cold War. But I would argue the United States still had a better hand to play than anybody else did, not just because of our economic and military leverage, but because of what we were talking about before, our capacity to organize, mobilize, to invest in alliances as well. Um, and that's really what's at stake now, uh, especially when the main driver of the old order, the United States, um, is basically drunk at the wheel right now. And, you know, when our allies are losing faith in hedging um, and our adversaries are taking advantage. And so it would have been a huge task no matter who was elected president in 2016. But what the pandemic crisis has done and the abdication of American leadership is to accelerate all of those trend lines and create, you know, a much more combustible combination of both traditional geopolitical rivalry like the United States and China, but also these big overarching challenges that aren't going to get any easier like climate change and health insecurity and a whole range of others as well. And the one other thing I'd add, David, is I, I absolutely agree with Tony that I think it's foolish to think about, you know, restoring um, the status quo ante, whatever it was before, because the world's not a static place. It's the international landscape has been in a process of transformation. So while the United States can't afford in our own cold-blooded self-interest to retrench from that landscape, um, we can't afford the illusion that we can restore things exactly the way we were before. I think we're going to have to reinvent you know, the way in which we approach disciplined leadership in the world. And that's a lot easier said than done. You know, our listeners obviously can't see what's going on here, but while you're speaking, I take notes and I reach to get a pen to take notes. And I realized the pen that I picked up uh, is from the Carnegie Sinhua Center for um, Global Policy in China, um, which sets up the question I was going to ask uh, 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 fairly well, <clears throat> Tony. Uh, and that is, again, before we get to the, the, the specific agenda come next January, we have several months intervening. And it looks like major powers and opportunists may look at this period while the Trump administration is weak or, as, as to use Bill's term, drunk at the wheel, and say, we've the clock's ticking. We, we can get certain things done now that we might not be able to as easily get done um, uh, after there's a new president and, and perhaps kind of new coalescing among Western alliance. Uh, and the, the perfect example of that's what's going on now in Hong Kong, mm. uh, where the Chinese government is making a move uh, to undo the basic law and impose its will and... Um, the United States has already responded to that. Secretary Pompeo has responded to it by saying that we can't certify that Hong Kong is independent, and so this may affect its status. I'm, I'm personally not clear how that benefits the people we're trying to support or advances our, our objectives, so you may want to comment on that. But, but what do you see as the dangers of the next few months? Well, there, there are a lot of them, and some of them are directly COVID-related and others are not. But, but let's stick with Hong Kong for a second, but put it in a larger frame before getting to Hong Kong itself. Um, I think it's fair to say that 
President Trump is the best president China's ever had. Um, <laughs> look at what he's done that's advanced their position strategically uh, and weakened ours. Uh, he's denigrated our alliances, which is a, a core differentiator between us uh, and, uh, and Beijing. Uh, we talked about the leadership vacuum in international institutions that uh, President Trump's abdication of U.S. Uh, engagement uh, has left, and China's been only too happy to try to fill the vacuum. Um, the administration has reduced the appeal uh, of the United States and democracy by the wholesale attack on our own institutions. Uh, and, and this gets directly to Hong Kong, it's abandoned our values, uh, including standing up uh, when those values are under assault in places like Hong Kong, uh, or for example, the Uyghurs, uh, a million in uh, de facto concentration camps. Um, when there were protests a year ago uh, in Hong Kong with people trying to stand up for the proposition that the autonomy they'd been guaranteed uh, needed to be sustained, uh, what did President Trump do? He said, I stand with President Xi Jinping. Uh, and that created, I think, uh, or certainly um, uh, accelerated a sense of impunity on the part of President Xi uh, that um, uh, Beijing could uh, crack down in the way that we've now seen on its obligations to, uh, to Hong Kong's autonomy. So the question is, what is to be done about it? Uh, and, you know, I think we have to take this with a big dose of humility, too. We can't simply flip a switch uh, and, uh, and change things. But um, for sure, uh, we have to be looking at reviewing and, uh, as necessary, rescinding uh, the special status uh, when it comes to trade, investment, travel uh, that Hong Kong enjoys as a result of its autonomous status. But here's the thing, uh, to your point, uh, if you look at the law carefully, there's a lot of flexibility built into it to reduce um, some of the benefits in some areas, but not in others, in, in a way that uh, allows us to minimize, if possible, the impact on the citizens of Hong Kong uh, and focus more on those responsible uh, for uh, undermining its autonomy. Uh, we should certainly be doing much more to, uh, to rally our, our, our partners and allies in Europe and in Asia to speak up, uh, to speak out, um, consulting, convening coordinating uh, their response. Um, looking to uh, some legislation that we have, the uh, Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, and looking to make sure that we're enforcing relevant provisions of that act. I think there are things we can be doing uh, when it comes potentially to applying global Magnitsky to this situation, uh, to looking at visa eligibility for officials, um, and to, as necessary, sanctioning uh, PRC institutions, companies, people, uh, who may be um, aiding and abetting the undermining of, um, of autonomy in, uh, in Hong Kong. And then finally, um, we should at the very least uh, be reaching out to, receiving, engaging democracy leaders in Hong Kong. Maybe we even need things like uh, uh, special immigrant visas for those who are being persecuted as a result of standing up for what is rightfully theirs in Hong Kong, and that is autonomy guaranteed to them uh, by the government in Beijing. So there are a whole host of actions, but this does come back to, in part, uh, the sense of impunity that I believe uh, Xi Jinping had in being able to pursue this, uh, and that impunity was created, that sense of impunity was created in part by President Trump's abandoning of our values. So let me pick up on that, because there are other flashing yellow lights out there over the course of the period between now and next January, um, Bill. Uh, one, one that's related to this, by the way, is that the Taiwanese government has already said, if people start leaving Hong Kong because of this, their law is set up for them to accept them in. This could create tension with, with Taiwan. Clearly, the Chinese uh, see an opportunity. But if you were the Saudis and you'd been getting a free ride, 
You might look at it that way if you were Bibi Netanyahu. You might look at it that way if you were Vladimir Putin. You might look at it that way if you were Viktor Orban. You might look at it that way and, and so on. And so the question is, you know, is this going to be open season for opportunists until we have um, a new administration in Washington or four more years of Trump? Yeah, I think it could be. And I think you highlighted a number of the areas, David, where you can see particularly autocrats around the world trying to take advantage of people's you know, understandable preoccupation with COVID-19 as well. I think a number of the areas that you just described, whether they're democratically elected leaders or authoritarians, you know, could see an opportunity to push agendas that don't necessarily run in the direction of American interests. Um, I think Tony's right that um, it's that sense of impunity, the sense that a lot of authoritarian leaders have that, you know, Donald Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. That, you know, a lot of what authoritarians have traditionally been criticized for quite rightly, you know, their own impunity, their own self-dealing, um, they're turning right back in the direction of the president of the United States and this administration. And their argument is that we're no different than they are in this era. Um, we're just more hypocritical about it. And so it, it opens up the landscape and I think a lot of really risky ways. You also get a lot of, you know, in, in, in other countries I learned over the years, it's a lot of amateur specialists in American politics too who look at election seasons and sometimes see them as opportunities. You didn't mention the Iranians, but I worry, too, about the dangers of a collision over the Iran issue, too, as you get into the autumn as well, which I don't think serves anybody's interest right now. Yes, and there was action again on that today um, uh, uh, about uh, uh, waivers regarding JCPOA. Uh, um, well, okay, let's turn our attention to what might happen in, in January. Tony, you're the top foreign policy advisor to the Biden campaign, uh, except for perhaps Vice President Biden. Uh, in fact, <laughs> Vice President Biden would be the most experienced foreign policy hand to become president of the United States, uh, certainly um, uh, in, in 32 years, may, may, you know, and, and we can debate his relative experience in this versus George H.W. Bush, but everybody else since then did not come with that kind of strength. Um, what do you think would change day one, first hundred days kind of thing? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, David. I think if you uh, were to ask uh, the vice president, he would say, in the first instance, our foreign policy has to start at home. Uh, and uh, there would be uh, a major focus on revitalizing, rejuvenating uh, our own democracy, which has been uh, tragically under assault by the current administration. Uh, because it's very hard to model uh, good conduct uh, abroad when you're not doing it yourself uh, at home. And so there is a lot to be done to reinvigorate uh, our own democracy, uh, to deal with the excesses that we've seen uh, in the last uh, three and a half years, and to put ourselves back on track. And uh, this is something the Vice President's laid out in a number of speeches in foreign affairs uh, a couple of months ago, um, et cetera. Um, Having done that uh, and having focused on that, he also believes that we need to um, shore up our own base around the world. And that base is uh, the community of like-minded uh, democratic allies and, and partners. Um, President Trump has spent uh, much of his term denigrating those allies and partners. 
um, I think Biden would take this in exactly the opposite direction. You, we all know this very well. Uh, democracy in so many ways has been on its, uh, on its heels uh, in recent years, uh, challenged internally by inequality, by corruption, uh, by populism, by hyper-partisanship, and then challenged externally by uh, autocracies, uh, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's others that use everything from disinformation to coercion to corruption to sowing division to try to undermine uh, democracies. So uh, Biden's actually called for doing one of the first things he would do as president is actually bring the world's democracies together to focus on what they can do to strengthen themselves at home. We face a lot of common problems and challenges. Uh, how do we think about dealing with those? And then fortifying ourselves to deal with challenges from outside. One of the most interesting aspects of this, it's just one aspect, is you know in many ways, um, the world is dividing up between, on the one hand, techno-democracies, and on the other hand, techno-autocracies. And the countries that uh, are able to decide uh, the rules and the norms uh, by which technology is used and the values infused in that technology, which so dominates our lives, uh, will have a lot to say about the future direction of the world. We need to be doing a much better job in bringing uh, like-minded countries together who share the same basic approach and values into thinking about and acting and working on that because otherwise the alternative uh, is uh, a world of techno-autocracies, uh, which is not a world that I think any of us would want to live under. Uh, no, indeed. Uh, and uh, I, I, I smile while listening to it, only thinking of the innumerable conversations that Bill and I have had about just that set of issues, those next-generation issues that are associated with technology. Uh, and in fact, you know, those are thrown into a certain kind of a light uh, because as we come out, uh, as, as a new president comes in, we will be hopefully coming out of this COVID period, um, and we will face choices like we faced in the 1930s. In the 1930s, uh, following the Depression, the United States made the choice to rebuild around the New Deal. Europe uh, largely made a choice uh, in the direction of fascism, or parts of Europe did. Uh, and we see this tension in times like this between reinvesting in democracy and, and, and the potential rise of autocracy. Um, Bill, as you look towards the agenda and for the first hundred days, uh, to what extent do you think those issues are going to influence it? Um, and if I may add just a second half to the question, there are a lot of things that were undone during the Trump years, whether it's JCPOA, TPP, Paris Accords, um, uh, some of these arms agreements and so forth, um, do you think it would be appropriate as an early order of business to try to restore those? I do. I'll start with the second part of your question first, David. I mean, I think, um, you know, it would be really important. I think Vice President Biden has said this, if he were elected to return to the Paris Climate Treaty immediately, I think it would be really important if this administration hasn't, for example, extended the New START agreement between the United States and Russia on strategic nuclear weapons by that point um, to work very quickly to try to do that. I think it would be very important, depending on what's left of the comprehensive nuclear agreement with Iran at that point, to re-engage directly in diplomacy with the Iranians and with our allies and partners um, to try to um, salvage as much of that as we can. Um, if the Iranians are prepared to fully comply, then we ought to follow through as well. Um, 
So it's going to take a lot longer to fix than it's taken to break. Um, as you look at the wreckage of a lot of international agreements that have been built up, not just during you know the, the Obama-Biden years, but for many years before that. And that challenge is going to be magnified by the fact that, as you said before, we're in the midst of this really complicated transition period on the international landscape as well, where disciplined American leadership is never going to be more important, but it's also going to be under pretty severe challenge with, you know, the the necessity of economic recovery and rebuilding the domestic economy. And that's where foreign policy, I think, will find its sense of purpose over the next few years. First, to help facilitate that domestic renewal so that you're creating better coordination, better opportunities for economic growth. Second, as Tony said, to mobilize others around the world using the Paris Climate Treaty as, as a platform um, around those big global issues and challenges of climate change, of maximizing the benefits while minimizing the dislocations of the revolution in technology, as you and I have discussed many times before, um, dealing with future health crises and, and pandemics as well. And then third, but not least, you know, in, in terms of the basic purposes um, that you'd want to re reorient American foreign policy toward, it's the traditional geopolitical rivalries that we, we can't afford to ignore either, especially the United States and China. So getting those um, three different kinds of purposes in balance is going to be a huge challenge. But the key, I think, in many ways um, to dealing successfully with them is going right back to Tony's point about, you know, regenerating our capacity for, you know, alliances, for mobilizing coalitions of countries, for building partnerships. There's so many ways that it needs to be picked up, and I've, I have so many questions. We've got 15 or 20 minutes here. Um, we have an audience typically of 30 or 40,000 foreign policy wonks, and so I, I'm going to take the, the, the risk of, of getting a little wonky here, uh, Tony, with the next question, uh, or a little inside the beltway. Because it seems that one of the big trends with regard to foreign policy in the Trump administration has been the centralization of the foreign policy into the person of Trump, transactional based on how it affects Trump, uh, implemented by a tiny handful of people around Trump, uh, and you have seen major waves of uh, departure uh, and and also disaffection in places like uh, the Foreign Service and um, uh, the intelligence community, the military. How do you think President Biden would use the foreign policy mechanisms of the U.S. government differently, including the NSC? Well, first, David, I think we'd restore the basic interagency process to continue on using wonky terminology, something that evolved from the, uh, the National Security Act of 1947 uh, that uh, uh, really started to enter its modern era uh, in the Kennedy administration after the Bay of Pigs and, and culminated in many ways with the, um, the Scowcroft uh, NSC and process that um, made sure that when it came to any decision, that an administration had to make in foreign policy, national security, international economic policy. All of the stakeholders were around the table, uh, providing uh, options, making sure that we were considering second and third order uh, effects, uh, and making sure that every perspective was taken into account before something got to the president. And it really comes down to three things. It comes down to uh, people, process, policy. 
you've got to have the right people in an administration, uh, hopefully uh, a, a good combination of uh, career professionals, but also some new blood that comes in with any administration uh, to further invigorate things. And hopefully uh, the most skilled and uh, relatively speaking, intellectually honest people you can find. Uh, second, you actually have to have this process because it doesn't do you any good to have a, a bunch of all-stars if there's no process by which to make sure that their views are uh, being put forward. And then finally, you actually have to come up with a policy that gives you a base to start and gives uh, a sort of common prayer book to, uh, to every administration official from ambassadors and folks in the field to the folks leading the departments uh, at home. All of that has been abandoned wholesale by uh, this administration, uh, almost uh, blown up. And um, look, none of, that, none of that guarantees success, but you've got a much greater chance uh, at dealing with these incredibly complex issues if you've got the people, if you've got the process, if you've got the policy. Now, uh, look, in fairness, I think it's true that in almost any administration, um, there's a tendency to uh, have the, the White House uh, and the uh, National Security Advisor's Office um, uh, take a, a lead role sometimes to the detriment of the agencies uh, and, and departments. Um, I remember uh, when um, I, uh, I succeeded Bill as, um, as Deputy Secretary of State, which by the way is a huge mistake. It's like being the act that follows the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. But having, uh, having done that, I came over from the NSC where I was Deputy National Security Advisor, went to the State Department, and I think in my first meeting at State, I said to the, uh, the team there, uh, I've only been here for a day, but I've got to tell you that my first priority is ending the outrageous micromanagement of foreign policy from the White House. So, you know, uh, where, where you sit speaks, speaks volumes. But I do think, I know uh, that um, uh, a Biden administration uh, would restore, uh, we're not going backward, but here's the one thing we would do that uh, is restoration. Uh, that a process that uh, I think over many administrations uh, has uh, served us pretty well. As Bill said at the outset, uh, we certainly made our share uh, of mistakes, but um, if you don't have that basic approach in place, uh, you're likely to make a lot more of them and they're likely to be a lot, uh, a lot harder. I think uh, we were, you know, many of us were, were, were thinking last year before COVID-19 broke out um, that, uh, you know, this administration and we had been very fortunate in the sense that there hadn't really been a major crisis on its watch. And gosh, what would happen if there was one, given how unprepared, how historically unprepared they are to deal with it? Well, we're living it now. Yeah, I, I find your comments very heartening and also a little distressing because, as you know, <laughs> I've I've written two books on yes. the history of the NSC, and I'm in the middle of a third history of the NSC. And if people listen to your summation of the last five minutes, there's no point in my finishing the book. <laughs> um, but I, I, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I agree. I have to throw in, an, as a sidebar, when you told your story about going from the White House to state, it immediately made me think of a story Madeleine Albright tells of having worked on the Muskie staff. And the last thing she did on the Muskie staff was write a request of the White House regarding something, fisheries or something. And she then went and joined the NSC staff and wrote the response to her own request, <laughs> um, which was kind of, you know, sort of how the government, but it's, it's your, your, your point about where you sit is where you stand is one that, you know, li lingers throughout all, all of these uh, books, but Bill, if I if I could just sort of stick with this 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 underlying point for just one second, uh, you know we are sort of tongue in cheek called Deep State Radio, um, uh, but 
you know, the issue of career staff, you're a long-serving career foreign service officer, and the, and the foreign service has just been decimated by what's happened over the course of the past three and a half years. Um, and I remember talking to you once about it and say, you said, you know, this takes years and years to fix. It's not something where you can throw a switch because you've got to get people back in the system and train them and so forth. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I mean, I think the hollowing out that Tony was describing earlier um, is a really serious challenge now um, for the United States as we think about our role in the world, the hollowing out of, of institutions, in particular our, our old institution, the State Department. Um, you know, you've seen the sidelining systematically of career expertise. There are, as both of you guys know very well, 28 assistant secretary positions in the State Department, assistant secretary state positions, the senior most jobs around which you organize foreign policy at the State Department. Uh, today, only one of those 28 is held by a Senate-confirmed career officer. You have something like a 40% uh, drop in the first couple of years of this administration in new applicants to join the Foreign Service, an historic number. You have an historically high number of political appointees and ambassadorships overseas, higher than any time in sort of modern American diplomatic history. And alongside that, you have a really pernicious practice of this administration going after individual career officers just because they worked on controversial issues in the last administration. And then you have, you know, what all of us witnessed during the Ukraine impeachment inquiry, when honorable um, career public servants, you know, went up to Capitol Hill, um, upheld their oath and their obligation to the Constitution, and tried as best they could to tell the truth when they were asked by Congress. And in return for that, um, they were pilloried and, you know, were faced with deeply unfair criticism from within their own administration. You know, and lots of those officers um, had served in tough places around the world and had faced, you know, incoming, both rhetorical and physical incoming. Um, and so they were accustomed to that. What they weren't accustomed to was facing it from their own administration. And, you know, as I wrote, you know, uh, last year, I mean, I, I think the Secretary of State was derelict in his duty in not standing up for his own people in the face of those unfair criticisms. Um, and we've done real corrosive damage to that institution over time. Tony's right, the drift toward over-centralization and how the United States makes and conducts foreign policy has been going on long before Donald Trump. He didn't invent it. Um, it's something that you know needs to be addressed seriously, but a lot of those negative trend lines, in fact, all of them that I can think of, have been accelerated and deeply aggravated over the mm -hmm. last three and a half years. Okay, so we have five, ten minutes left to go here. Um, and I, and in in, in continuing in the vein of what changes, uh, relationships with major powers are clearly not binary, and indeed they're deeply complex. But I'm wondering if we can play a kind of little bit of a lightning round. I'll throw out a few names and 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 just get some reactions uh, from you as to what the leaders in those countries, what message they will get that will say, this is how things are going to be different. And Tony, let me start with Xi Jinping in Beijing. Uh, I think with with uh, Xi Jinping in Beijing, I mean, what's interesting is there's a there's a relationship there uh, that goes back uh, uh, some years when uh, Joe Biden was vice president, 
Uh, he spent a lot of time with Xi Jinping when she was vice president before he was elevated uh, to the, the top leadership position. So um, I think uh, Vice President Biden is very clear-eyed uh, and realistic about uh, uh, Xi Jinping, about China, knows the leaders, uh, knows the challenge that, uh, uh, that they pose to us. Uh, and uh, the main thing I think uh, Xi Jinping would see is a United States that's reinvesting in its own competitiveness, uh, something that has been uh, greatly devalued in this administration, starting, as I said, at home, both economically, uh, but also in terms of our, our, our democracy. That's going to make us a much stronger and more effective competitor uh, for China, uh, to, to China. And then when you marry that with a reinvestment and re-engagement with our own allies and partners, uh, as opposed to an outright denigration of them, uh, I think Xi Jinping will see uh, the United States that's m uh, in a position of much greater strength to engage in, uh, in competition, which is something that uh, was normal, was going to happen, uh, and isn't necessarily bad as long as the, the playing field is relatively level, and as long as we've made the investments in ourselves, and as long as we're working with others who are similarly situated and have similar concerns about uh, Chinese actions and behaviors. That's going to be a very different world, uh, I think, from um, uh, the perspective of Beijing. As I said earlier, uh, in many ways, President Trump has been the best American president China has had in terms of its strategic position. Uh, that would change under, um, under President Biden. Um, at the same time, there are clearly areas where, uh, if we can, out of, out of self-interest, uh, we need to be finding ways to work together with China. There are big global challenges, whether it is climate, whether it's global health, as we're finding out, whether it's nonproliferation, that would benefit from uh, us working together. But if we're doing it starting from a position of strength, as opposed to a position of weakness that uh, President Trump has put us in, uh, we're going to be a lot more effective and I think elicit uh, better cooperation. Bill, what about Vladimir Putin? How's the message going to be different? Well, what I would hope is that it's a firm and consistent message, unlike you know what you've seen in this administration, where you you know you have a president who seems infatuated with Putin as he is with many autocrats. You remember the scene at the Helsinki um, summit between the two of them in the summer of 2018, when President Trump essentially threw 17 U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies under the bus and said he basically trusted Putin's view with regard to whether Russia had interfered in the 2016 election or not over his, his own um, agencies. Um, and, you know, the president may have intended that as an effort to ingratiate himself. I think Putin looked at him on that stage, and if you could have seen the cartoon balloon coming out of his head, it would have read, what an easy mark. Because from his point of view, that's a sign of weakness and manipulability. So I think speaking with, um, you know, uh, with firmness and consistency and, and reinvesting in allies and partners, even if we're not going to see the challenge of Russia identically all the time with some of our closest European partners, it's certainly possible to produce, um, you know, I think a much more common front than we have now. And that's the key to dealing with you know, autocrats, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or anybody else, I think, is to deal from a position of strength. Um, we have about a minute left. Tony, you know, it strikes me that there's a couple of areas that have just fallen off the table that we essentially have to restart again. Um, climate change is, is one of them, fighting the climate crisis. You know, women's empowerment is one, promoting democracy is one. Are there other areas like this that just we, we, we are going to have to ramp back up from nearly zero in your mind? Well, uh, you know, I think you've, you've named the key ones, but again, I come back to where we started, and, and, and Bill uh, spoke eloquently to this. Um, for all of the things that are, that are out there, 
the beginning of uh, any new administration is going to be dominated uh, by uh, digging ourselves out of the hole that we're in as a result of uh, the coronavirus. Uh, and it's going to be also trying to make sure that uh, what happened uh, to all of us um, doesn't happen again, or at least we minimize the prospects for it happening again. One of the great tragedies uh, of this is that um, uh, the Obama-Biden administration and the Bush administration put in place a lot of defenses to deal with what they saw as the emerging global threat of pandemics that were taken down or even decimated by the Trump administration, including defenses in China itself, which we knew was the potential point of origin. So that's one of the things we need to get back to. Uh, but I think, you know, the main focus, but also potentially the driver of real opportunity is the response to uh, the crisis. Uh, Biden talks about building back better. Um, we have an opportunity to do that. And I think a lot of these things can dovetail. Uh, climate and global health in particular, uh, there are potentially coming out of this huge opportunities. And then uh, the other big one, of course, is the economy. And how do we make sure that people who are so grievously hurt uh, by what happened uh, have a chance uh, to get back on their feet and recover? And is there an opportunity to deal with the massive inequalities that we've seen emerge within our societies that have been a driver of so much of the populism that has in turn undermined our democracy. Um, so we have to, I think, look at it that way, but the big driver is going to be um, the response to the virus. Uh, you know, this is the most optimistic I felt since you know this lockdown began. <laughs> I really wanna thank you guys. Bill, I wanna give you the last word here, picking up on what Tony said. Uh, through much of the this period of the virus, and frankly, through much of the Trump administration, with the United States, to use your term, drunk at the wheel. Um, you know, I, th I th there's been a little bit of a resurgence among some of the refrains we heard from the declinists for a long time about American decline, about America no longer being able to lead. Can we get back to the way we were? What do you say to the declinists? Well, I'm not a declinist myself. I suppose I'm a realist, but not a fatalist. I, as I said before, I think the United States still has a better hand to play um, than our major rivals if we play it wisely. Um, that's not going to last forever unless we reinvest in our strengths, not just at home, which is crucially important, but also our allies and our partnerships as well. Um, we do have to recognize that unlike that first quarter century after the end of the Cold War, we, we are no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block. That makes it all the more important for us to invest in, you know, in working with others on a lot of the big global issues as well as traditional geopolitical issues that we face. So I'm, I'm an optimist in that sense. I mean, my optimism has been tempered a lot in recent years because we have been digging a pretty deep hole for ourselves. And my concern is when we finally stop digging and start to climb back up to the top of the hole, we're going to look out in a landscape that's hardened against our interests. I think we can navigate even that hardened landscape effectively, but it's going to take um, you know, some honest reckoning with the fact that we've all too often in the past, long before Donald Trump, not matched ends and means effectively. We've, you know, I think, been guilty of a lot of magical thinking about our transformative powers in places like the Middle East. Um, and we're going to have to be honest with ourselves and, and I think with the American people about that, too, who I think are skeptical sometimes about all of us, people like me, you know, card-carrying members of the Washington establishment because of, you know, overreach in the past, too. So 
Um, the short answer is yes. I think a, a lot is possible. I'm not a declinist. I think the United States still has a strong hand to play, but we're going to have to, you know, reckon honestly um, with the importance of playing that in a very disciplined fashion. Well, one of the reasons that I am optimistic is not just your words, but the fact that I know that should the page turn in the way that we're talking about it, it won't just be people like you guys who are playing leadership roles in this. It'll be you guys and others who I know who have the kind of experience and vision and sensitivity. Uh, and frankly, you know, for, I've for 25 years or so have been saying we need a president who understands foreign policy and who can place that front and center because it's not a secondary issue, even if the first priority is, as Tony says, the rebuilding of the United States economy, those 20 million jobs or 30 million jobs that we're still going to have to rebuild coming into 2021 are not going to come from nowhere. They're going to come from engaging with the world uh, and doing so in a constructive way. And that's why uh, this aspect of our relationship is so essential, our, our international relationships is so essential to what we achieve domestically. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to join us. I certainly hope that you'll come back again between now uh, and Election Day and thereafter. Um, and in the interim, I hope that you will stay safe. And I hope that that is the case also for everybody who's listening. Thank you very much.